Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Wow, thank you very much. Just have to negotiate the... Uh, you see, we should have practised the walking on stage bit. Yeah. But it's OK, because everything we get wrong today is just part of the <laughs> glorious mosaic of wrongness that we're here to discuss. Um, <laughs> shut up, Tim. I'm sorry that we're very slightly late. Uh, Professor Edmondson and I were just having such an incredible time ch- talking backstage about <laughs> behavioural science and all kinds of other things that we like. Oh, actually, we should, prob- we should probably continue this conversation here. Um, I am uh, Tim Harford. Uh, Honoured to be uh, back on the stage at the RSA. Uh, I'm a Financial Times columnist, uh, BBC broadcaster. Possibly the RSA have asked me to chair this event uh, because uh, some time ago I wrote a book called Adapt, Why Success Always Starts With Failure. Possibly they've asked me... Uh, to come along because I uh, write the Cautionary Tales podcast where, you know, every fortnight some new wrongness to discuss and to learn from. Look up up Cautionary Tales if you're interested in that. Um, So I've been interested in in wrongness and (laughs) error for a long time. Uh, But it was only after I wrote a book about the subject and was asked to go and give a speech at Disney World, of course, uh, that... (laughs) I started rethinking it. And what made me rethink all the happy talk I've been offering about, you need to fail fast, you need to fail forward, success starts with a failure, all this sort of stuff, was watching a speech by one of the great old men of Disney. So he was, he was speaking to this conference of business, business executives, and I was supposed to be speaking afterwards. And he, sh- he shuffled on stage. He was a very old man. He's sadly no longer with us, Marty Sklar, one of the great men of the Disney Corporation. Um, very elderly, he shuffled on stage with his cane and he stood and he talked to us about how things worked at Disney and the creativity at Disney. And, and he said, I'll never forget, he said, we knew that if we weren't failing at half of what we did, we weren't being brave enough, we weren't being original enough, we weren't being experimental enough. Hmm. And, and everybody in the room nodded at the wisdom of these words. <laughs> and, uh, and I went up on stage and I looked at the, all the people in front of me who had agreed with, with the great Marty Sklar. And I also agreed with him. And I thought, you guys are actually in supply chain logistics. <laughs> are you actually going to fail in half of what you do? <laughs> what does that even mean? I mean, it sounds great when the Disney guy says it, and in a a very real sense, it's true and it's important about the process of Disney, but it's clearly not true about the process of supply chain management. (laughs) There's something more complex, there's something more sophisticated than all the happy talk about this subject. And there is no better antidote to to lazy, cheap talk about (laughs) failure than taking a class at the Harvard Business School from Professor Amy Edmondson, who is the world's leading expert uh, on human error, organizational error, and how we talk and learn, talk about and learn from organizational error. Um, Taking that class is a great privilege extended to only a few people. However, anybody can buy a copy of Professor Edmondson's wonderful new book, Right Kind of Wrong, though she will be signing Uh, copies uh, outside after this talk. 
you should just do that because the book is absolutely outstanding. It's full of really careful research. It's a pleasure to read. It's incredibly fluently written, full of interesting stories. Uh, and, and it's not just cherry-picked stuff. This is, this is the real deal. Uh, if you don't believe me, you should probably listen to Professor Edmondson for about 15 minutes, or 20 <laughs> minutes, and see what she has to say for herself. Um, those of you uh, in the room, you will be able to uh, ask questions of Professor Edmondson at, at the end. Uh, those of you watching online, oh, I've got to get this right because I'm a very old man now. I turned 50 last week. Can you believe it? <laughs> yes, you can believe it because I look it. Okay, what do I have to say? Yes, if you're watching online, post it in the chat or on Twitter. Is it still called Twitter? Whatevs. <laughs> Using the hashtag, hashtag RSA work. Uh, so I will receive uh, some of these questions on my magic tablet, and I will try and put as many as possible to Professor Edmondson. Uh, I have talked long enough. Please join me in welcoming to the lectern Professor Amy Edmondson. Oh. What? What a great introduction. Thank you. And I love that Disney story. Um, and it's, it's, it, you tell a similar story or give a similar example to one I often use and supply chain being one of them but I'll sometimes say you know people will be waxing poetic about fail fast fail often I say tell that to the you know to the operating theater and it's like uh, it's patently obvious that's not good advice right so um, before I go anywhere else I will just say this forget you know if you if you remember nothing else remember this context matters so when we talk about fail well, we are talking about a particular context. And I will clarify that uh, and much more. Now, um, I am sure that all of you in this room and online are familiar with the concept of DNA. I'm not terribly sure, but I suspect that most of you do not manipulate these tiny compounds to produce life-saving therapeutics for a living. Right? And maybe some of you do. Um, but that is, in fact, what Dr. Jennifer Heemstra does do for a living. She is a chemistry professor at Emory University in the United States. She was the first woman to receive tenure at Emory University. Um, and she is a veritable spokesperson for the power of failure and how, you know, how wonderful failure is. So she's one of those people who's kind of contributed uh, to this craze. And as she will say to her students and postdocs, the young scientists in her lab, we're going to fail all day. Um, you can tell, I think, by her smile that she means it. Um, and is she saying to her scientists, go ahead and do lousy work? Of course not. She's saying, if you want to be a successful chemist, scientist, you must be willing to fail. And she estimates that about 90% of the failures in her lab end in failure. Right? So think about that for a moment. You know, you, you wake up, you get out of bed, and you're going to go to work today in Jen's lab to fail 90% of the time. I mean, how do you even get yourself there? Right? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. Part of the answer, at least, is those 10%, right? They're pretty exciting. They're going to be major discoveries, major publications. And, and, and the other part is you learn to believe sincerely that that's 
part of the sport, right? The part of the sport of being a great scientist is the willingness to fail, which is also code for the willingness to try bold things, which may work, but equally may not. So Jen, as I said, is one of the more, is one of the visible people in the failure craze um, and, and has contributed to the kind of rhetoric that Tim uh, mentions. And here's the rub, right? <laughs> we know deep in our hearts, the problem with the failure fed, right? Deep in our hearts, as half of, as, as the Disney folks um, also knew, that failure is bad, right? I mean, none of us want to fail. We want to succeed. We learned that in elementary school and it kept getting solidified the older we got. The, by the time you're a working adult, you really get this, right? At a very deep level. Um, failure will lead to humiliation and rejection and success is what you want. So, you know, how do we, how do we square this? Um, I, think, I think part of the way, this is, this is meant to indicate this kind of emotional reaction we may have even when we're spouting the happy talk. Um, and, and so, um, I would argue that the organizations that we work in um, often, not always, but often contribute to that very basic visceral understanding of failure is bad, success is good. Um, let me tell you a story. Just a few years ago, kind of early days of the pandemic, I was meeting with some executives at a financial services firm, and um, they knew who I was, they knew my work, and they said, you know all that failure stuff? That stuff's great in good times. But now, facing this turbulent and, and challenging business environment that lies ahead, now we have to say failure's off limits, right? Now we must execute perfectly. I sure empathized. But there are two major sort of logical problems with that statement, right? Number one, in turbulent times, failure is more likely than ever, right? Number two, in turbulent times, innovation is more important than ever and its corresponding need for experimentation and the occasional um, failure. So while I understood where they were coming from, I also understood that the primary accomplishment of that kind of rhetoric from the top would not be the production of perfection in their truths, but it might very effectively make sure they don't hear about the things that go wrong. Right? So that was, that was kind of my belief, which I gently tried to um, encourage them to, um, to see. Um, uh, but, but what they need to understand is, yes, indeed, there are failures that we should and can work hard to prevent. And then there are other failures that we must train ourselves to actually welcome. And those are, to coin a phrase, the right kind of wrong. Um, someone, well, Jennifer Heemstra embodies that understanding, uh, but, but we don't have to stay in the modern era. We can go way back in history. We can go to Thomas Alva Edison, um, of course, certainly one of the great inventors of all time, who supposedly, when a lab assistant approached the great inventor and said, gosh, all this failure must be so hard for you, he said, failure? I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Um, now, that does sound like a very large number, but, but what Edison understood is that each and every one of those experiments 
were stepping stones on the way to the electric light bulb or the phonograph or uh, you name it. So he understood that that is the sport he had signed up to play. Um, and you know, great scientists, inventors, elite athletes, celebrity chefs, some of the people on the leading edge of any field you can name likely fail more often than the rest of us. Uh, so Edison understood what I'll call the right kind of wrong, science of failing well. It now leads me to want to say, um, to share with you my typology, my, my archetypes uh, uh, for, for kinds of failure. Two of them are not good. Two of them are ones that we indeed don't want to celebrate. We don't want to encourage them in our supply chains or our operating theaters or anywhere else. Um, and one of them is um, the good kind. I, I've, I've uh, depicted it over here with a scientific laboratory, to be super clear, about the context where this is most germane. But let me define each of them. So a basic failure, all of them, by the way, any failure is an undesired result. A basic failure is an undesired result caused by a single cause, generally human error. You make a mistake, you produce a failure. Big, small. Uh, uh, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, some employees at Citibank uh, checked the wrong box in an online form and accidentally transferred $800 million to a client um, that's a big failure. Turns out they couldn't get it back. So it's a basic failure, uh, but it's a big failure. Um, more on that uh, in, a, in a moment. Um, a complex failure happened. They're very, um, very likely to happen in complex settings like healthcare. They are multi-causal. These are the kinds of failures that happen when several factors, not a single one of which on its own would lead to a failure, come together in just the wrong way and produce um, a failure. And then we get to intelligent failures, which are the undesired results of thoughtful forays in new territory. Let me be even more clear than that. Now, on the next slide, I have my four and a half criteria for intelligent failure. Um, but the talk about intelligent, no, actually, this would be a basic failure or maybe a complex one, I'm not sure, but the font uh, didn't quite fit uh, in, the, in the boxes when it got transferred by, by USB across platforms. Um, so probably um, PDFing would have taken care of that, but nonetheless. So criterion number one, it must take place in new territory. If you are a scientist in Heemstra's lab, you are running experiments that cannot yet be found in the literature or don't bother, right? Number two, they are in pursuit of a goal, whether that's a great publication in a scientific journal or a discovery or a life-saving therapeutic. You, are, uh, you perceive a credible opportunity to make progress toward that goal with this action that you will take. Number three, you've done your homework. If you're a scientist, you've read the literature. If um, you're going to go out on a blind date, you've interviewed your friend to find out you know, why they think you might like this person. You've done your homework. You, know, you have credible reason to believe it might succeed. And here's the one that I think is most often missed in the, with the failure craze. It's as small as possible. Right? Do not bet resources or use time wastefully. Right? It should be just big enough to get the information you need. And that's it, right? That makes it intelligent. The half criterion is this. You take the time uh, to learn from it. You can learn from all failures, of course, and should learn from all failures, but um, this is certainly an important um, criterion. The point here, and the point, you know, one of the main ideas in the book is there is simply no way to make progress in new territory without these failures. 
Heemstra understands that. Edison understood that, right? That it's, it's just um, part and parcel of the sport. So that makes intelligent failures, unlike the other two, kind of theoretically not preventable, right? Because you literally couldn't know in advance that it won't work. However, they are avoidable. So think about it. It sounds contradictory. But they are avoidable. Of course they are. Just don't take risks. Only do safe things. You'll be happier, really. But you won't make any progress or great accomplishments. So maybe, maybe not such good advice. Um, so um, let me share another story from the book very briefly. Um, and and uh, you know, failure. There's so many failures and I, uh, that are sobering because they're so tragic and because they involve loss of, loss of life. One of them was Air Florida Flight 80, 82, 90, sorry, Air Florida Flight 90 in 1982, thankfully a long, a long time ago, when Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River, the freezing cold, icy Potomac River on January 13th, killing 78 uh, people. Um, now, this is a failure, to be sure. This is a transcript on this slide of the black box recording as the pilot and co-pilot went through their checklist, their pre-flight checklist. Um, can any of you spot the error, the human mistake in this slide? Yes? Anti-ice off. Yes, January, freezing cold Potomac. Anti-ice should be on, right? And so, I mean, I, I won't ask, but I, I, will, I will imagine you are thinking, as I am, that the reason this could happen, because how could this happen? I mean, look out the window. How could this happen? Well, because many people are tempted to use checklists, roughly speaking, in their sleep, right? And Air Florida, I think, is a tip-off. Right? This is a this is a flight crew that is used to nice warm weather. Anti-ice is almost a kind of rhetorical device, right? We don't think about anti-ice on very often. Um, but this is indeed a basic failure. Single human error led to a catastrophic, but still basic, uh, failure. Um, all of this is to say that we, in the, in the modern world especially, must rethink excellence, right? Excellence isn't perfection. Excellence isn't, you know, success unfettered all the time. Excellence means in your organizations and in your life, doing what you can to prevent as many basic failures as possible. Doing what you can to anticipate and speak up about factors that may look fishy to you to prevent and at least mitigate as many complex failures as possible and then doing whatever you can to increase the ratio of the intelligent failures to the rest, right? to take more risks, to be, to be willing uh, to get out there uh, and try new things in pursuit of a goal in new territory. So excellence is basically about you know, catching and correcting error and then having more experiments. Because of my prior work and there's still a, an enduring interest in creating a learning environment, I will point out that doing this well, creating excellence, especially in an organization or a family, means creating psychological safety for speaking up. Um, because it's especially important for people to speak up when they're not quite sure about something. Um, and, and then also reward the smart failures, like celebrate them, really, really do, and, 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 uh, and, and celebrate the, 
uh, opportunity to try something else. So what gets in the way of all of that? Well, <laughs> I'll share one, one quick model here, which is you know, if you stop to pause and um, analyze any given failure in your life, in your team, in your workplace, um, the chances are that something along this spectrum um, was, was the culprit. Um, by the way, it's probably unlikely that someone just set out to create mischief, sabotage, right? But that's certainly, a, it's, a, it's a logical possibility. Then there's, you know, what, like in Air Florida, Flight 90 wasn't paying attention or wasn't yet trained. I didn't go to pilot school, what have you, right? We go all the way over to Jen Heemstra's lab where the failures are largely caused by experimenting in the first place. You can easily see that these shift from blameworthy to praiseworthy. Now. If I ask you to think about the failures in your midst, in your organizations perhaps, um, what percent are actually caused by blameworthy acts? Now most people will tell me, well, very few. You know, somewhere between almost zero and sometimes these weird places, they'll tell me as many as like 5%. They go, well, you gotta, you've got some work to do. But, but you know, not many, right? That's kind of, we don't really imagine our colleagues are out just trying to wreck things. So then I say, well, what percent of failures in your organization get treated as if they were caused by blameworthy acts? And like you, they'll laugh a little, look a little uncomfortable, um, and say something like, well, most of them. Um, and I say, well, that gap, right? That gap means you've got an unhealthy failure culture. Um, do you want to do something about that? Yes, yes, I do. So here's just three things to think about, um, and then I will stop and we'll open it up. But the three things I think to think about in your organizations are, number one, call attention to the context, to its uncertainty, to its interdependence, to its complexity, to dramatically increase the chances that people will be willing to speak up about it. Number two, invite participation, lean into inquiry, ask people to try things, you know, really just get people sort of get their sleeves rolled up and, and start working together to, to create the future, if you will. And number three, respond, not as that prior slide suggested, um, with a negative or emotional response to things that go wrong, but rather with an appreciative scientific response um, as, as Jen Heemstra um, uh, taught us. So for me in writing this book, I, you know, I've long been interested in these issues primarily because I'm interested in learning and improving the world in which we find ourselves. And it's, um, it seems to me there's no, no better way to thrive in an uncertain world as fallible human beings than to master the mindset and practices of of sort of a healthy failure culture. So I will end with the epigraph of the book, which is from Louisa May Alcott, an American novelist from very, very long ago, who says, I am not afraid of storms, for I am learning to sail my ship. I think all of us need to learn to navigate fallibility and uncertainty, and I think we need to do it together. So thank you. <laughs> I, I wanted to, uh, the risk of telling you something you already know, I, of course you already know this, but other people <laughs> may not have read the book yet. I wanted to just go over the very first anecdote in the book, because I think it's really, <laughs> I think it's really uh, revealing. So 
the, uh, the context here is that uh, researchers have been studying uh, errors made by airline crews. And they think, oh, when airline crews get tired, they're going to make more mistakes. But then it turns out that's not actually true. The individual members of the crews make more mistakes, but the crew as a whole makes fewer mistakes because the crew as a whole has better communication because they've been working together for longer. Have I got that right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, a, brilliant, I mean, it's a brilliant and surprising, or at least surprising no. at the time in so the I've 80s. Got, so I got yeah, that right, got because, that right because you've explained it yeah. in a brilliant and completely no, uh, no, intuitive no. way in the book. But then along comes Professor Edmondson, who says, <laughs> I am going to investigate a similar dynamic in medical teams. Do PhD student Edmondson. PhD student Edmondson. Uh, failure is not an option. Right. Got to get the PhD. Going to investigate failure in medical teams. Surely the best performing medical teams, you know, the, the best, the most cooperative, the most collegiate medical teams will uh, commit fewer errors. What? <laughs> what happened? Right. So straightforward. It's such an easily replicated idea. Um, so what happened was I, I had the, the privilege of, of distributing and then getting data back from a team diagnostic survey developed by my advisor. And you know, lo and behold, I had sort of very nice data suggesting that teams really did differ across units. So. Then I just waited patiently for six months while trained medical investigators collected the error data, um, largely by going sort of door to door, you know, unit to unit, sort of reviewing charts and asking people what happened this week. And everybody knew there was a big error study, so people were, you know, reasonably cooperative. So when I finally got the data on errors at the team level and correlated them with my data on team effectiveness, first glance, statistically significant correlation, yes. And then I noticed something problematic. It was in the wrong direction. And you know that was, that was deeply disturbing on so many levels. Uh, first of all, I'm not going to graduate. I'm never going to have a job and all the rest. But, but more fundamentally, really? Like better teams are, are screwing up more? It just doesn't make uh, sense. So I did what people do in that situation, which is you start to think um, pretty carefully and deeply and maybe even slightly creatively. And it occurred to me several hours in that maybe they don't, maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes. Maybe they're more willing and able to speak up about the mistakes that do occur. And to make a long story short, I had to sort of find out with the help of a RA who wasn't biased in favor of finding that, that in fact, these units, these patient care units were wildly different in their interpersonal climate. Right, some would say things like, well, of course you speak up. You know, patients are at risk. You don't want something bad to happen. You go, yeah, that makes sense to me. But then in others, they'd be saying, you do not want to make a mistake around here. You get treated like a two-year-old. You get put on trial. So that didn't mean they didn't make mistakes. It meant they didn't talk about them. No. Right, so I began to think my data were better explained by reporting bias than by reality itself. Yeah. I mean, this is such an important point, I think, and uh, and of course you you mentioned it, but I think I think perhaps because you're so familiar with it, you may have slightly soft pedaled it in your in your remarks. So this is the this is the idea that you yeah. alluded to of psychological safety. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that yeah. and how so, to build an environment of psychology. You know that that accidental finding for me then led to um, several studies by me and then many by others 
um, to see whether you could measure interpersonal climate robustly? And if so, did it predict differences in learning behavior? And if so, did it predict differences in, in, in team performance? And lo and behold, all of that was true. It, it was measurable, it predicted learning, it predicted performance. Famously, back in 2016, there was a New York Times Magazine article by Charles Duhigg um, reporting on a study at Google that used my measure, my psychological safety measure, and found that it was the best predictor of performance differences across teams at Google. So that put, put, put me and the measure on the map, which was nice, thank you, Google. Um, but wasn't something I had anything to do with per se. But the, but the amazing thing about this variable and this research is that it has, you know, there are now well over a thousand peer-reviewed studies on many, many in, in, in the healthcare literature on the sort of robust association between psychological safety and sort of team performance and various other things, quality improvement results, um, innovation, uh, results. So it turns out that, you know, just being in an environment, I almost prefer to talk about it as a learning environment, but being in an environment where we're all kind of in there, aware of each other's fallibility, aware of our potential to, you know, learn new things, and, and sort of willing to take the interpersonal risks that implies is, is really a good thing in, in sort of today's environment. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the, um, the Edison Line, the 10,000 ways that don't work. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a wonderful story about the Kramer Prize, which was announced in the 1960s by a British industrialist. Um, this is back in the days when there were British industrialists. Um, <laughs> so Henry Kramer says, uh, I mean, the prize in today's money is, I don't know, a million dollars, two million dollars. Um, for anybody who can make a, uh, an aeroplane that is powered by the pilot, and that can fly, I think, half a mile, figure of eight, above, above six feet. And for 15, 16 years, everyone's trying to win this prize, and they're not making any progress, really. And the basic problem is the, it's taking too long to get through the 10,000 ways that don't work, <laughs> fundamentally. Because every time you discover a way that doesn't work, you just had a plane crash. And OK, <laughs> like the plane is flying at 10 miles an hour, and it's only that high. But, but still, still. You, know, you wrecked your plane. And then along comes. Uh, an American aeronautical engineer called Paul McCready, who says, look, forget, forget the human power of flight thing for a second. What we need is to build a plane that you can crash and then fix the plane within hours, huh. not, not months. And so he designs this plane that can be, you know, and there were a couple of times when he's trying to win the prize where they basically said, let's just completely take the, part, the plane apart and re redesign the plane from scratch, and it's super cheap. So, uh, and, he, and he wins the Kramer Prize in, in months. So this gets, you had this yeah. slide where you said the thing about intelligent failures is that they're as small as possible. Right. So that's what McCready did. That's ah. what Edison did. Make the, make the cost right. of the failure as small as possible. But I, I wanted to ask about how you do that because a lot of it, yeah. a lot of it is dependent on the technology. Like Google can just iterate Gmail, but they can't, Ford can't iterate breaks, right? Right. Um, so how do you, yeah, how do you and, in any and context, context reduce, right. reduce the cost of error? So Ford doesn't want to experiment. I mean, Google's fine to experiment on Gmail with us, right? Yeah, but, yeah. And that's fine. We don't mind. Yeah. Whereas Ford can't we, experiment. We don't even notice, right? We don't even yeah. notice, right? But Ford can't experiment on brakes in its passenger vehicles, right? No. But Crown so what does it do? It has to do it either in a simulator or in a laboratory or, you know, off offline. Mm -hmm. um, and... 
And that's, you know, that's, that's of course what happens in aviation. We don't, we don't um, experiment with real pa passengers at, at 30,000 feet. We, we do it in the simulator for that very reason. So there's, you know, as small as possible is a rather abstract concept. Yeah. And it means different things in different concepts. Right? It yeah. means go in the simulator, even though that's a little bit expensive, but not much, versus the real thing. Or it means don't invest more money than you can afford to lose in an uncertain investment. Um, but it, it all, I mean, I thought where you were going with that is, McCready just, he rethought the problem. You know that line by John Dewey, which is a problem uh, well put is half solved. Yeah. So McCready's the first one to put the problem yeah. in the, the right the way. He rethought he, the problem. He rethought the problem in a way that would be totally natural to anybody who just saw your talk, right? But, ah, but he did it in... Nice. What a nice compliment. But he did it in 1978, right. so right. well done him. Right. But, uh, so yeah, the reframing of problems, I mean, that's, that's, all, that's important. But I, I think, do, do we think enough about... So my sense, oh, tell me if I'm yeah. wrong, my sense is that we intrinsically think, I, I'm not, I don't want to fail, I'm not going to fail, yeah. it's painful to think about failure, yep. and therefore I don't need to think about making my inevitable failure as I quick see. and cheap as possible. That's a Whereas great actually point. if you go into it going, I probably will, I'm like... It, at least it's one of the options. Yeah, right? failure is quite possible, right. and therefore I will think in advance about how, about how big failure. it is. Yep. So I mean, another way to put this is, that, you know, experimental design should be thoughtful, or you should be taking smart risks. Right? But so, even the idea that this is an experiment is itself. That's like exactly right. Ex that's exactly right. So here's here, here's my extreme view on that, which is everything is an experiment. Right? Even when you're on the automotive assembly line and. It's like 99.99% sure that a Corolla is coming off the other end perfectly, right? You're still kind of thinking about that Corolla as a hypothesis. Yeah. So that you're alert when, you, when there's just a tiny imperfection and you notice it and you catch it and you pull that end on cord. Yeah. It's so everything is a hypothesis. And you, as you know, you and I both, as as writers, we know that. Like every time you write a sentence, it's like it's bad right away. Right, right away, it needs fixing. So if you start, you feel bad about it. Right, but if you think about it, well, that was just a hypothesis. Right, that was my first foray onto this blank screen. No yeah. wonder it's no good. Yeah. But I'll make it better. Yeah, I like that take. <laughs> you're, you're, you're among nerd friends here, so. Um, and, there's, and there's a lot more about and on chords and, and Toyota in the book, which you should all buy because it's fantastic. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got loads of great questions coming in um, online. I've got, I was already sent a million questions. There's some really good ones here. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the room for questions in a moment, but I want to, but I, I want to. They made the trouble to get here, right? So yeah, I know, but still, but these, these people yeah. thought ahead. Okay. Oh, these, wow. pe these people were yeah, emailing these questions gosh. in a week ago, so they're ahead in the queue. It's, it's a hierarchy. It's a, it's a yeah. moral dilemma. It's well, I'm only going to pick a couple, but but um, or actually, I'm going to pick one, which is: uh, Can you say more about the links between a psychologically safe environment and an inclusive environment? Oh, sure. Uh, I'll define an inclusive environment in as one in which I believe. And this is going to sound quite circular because it is that I am included, and I means my ideas, my voice, my concerns, and 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 my help. Right, I can contribute things that might help you. Right, so 
So in a way, they're not, it's not the same concept, but in, in practice, they should be very well aligned. A, a, a more psychologically safe environment is more likely to feel like a more inclusive environment. Yeah. I may come back to, there were some great questions here, but there may be even great questions in the room. Possibly. Um, um, so let, so uh, let, me, let me take three, uh, let me start with you, please. Yes, you, yes. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, yes. You we see, that's, that's my second basic I, failure yeah. <laughs> of the day. The first one was not getting off stage for your talk, which is what I was asked to do. I'm so sorry. Uh, and, and I say it's my second basic failure of the day. Who knows? It may be, there may have been several others I didn't even notice. Please. Thank you. Uh, my name's Zoe Arden. Firstly, having a huge fangirl moment. Thank you so much. Uh, so we've talked quite a lot about language and how nuanced language actually shapes yeah. behaviour and attitude. I'm really interesting, interested in how stories and storytelling can accelerate an, an environment where people are willing to fail and ask questions. And I'd love your, your thoughts on that, please. Okay, we're gonna hold, so we're gonna okay. hold that okay. one. I wanna yep. take a couple more. So there's a, yep. there's a yep. just next to you there. Hi, thank you very much. I've been on some leadership events where they're focused around psychological safety and uh -oh. they say, instead of having a conversation about someone being on their phone in a meeting, you should say, can we have a chat about our relationship? So they're not blindsided by, really, that's what you want to talk about. But my thinking is, would a more psychologically safe approach for many people be to actually to talk about the phone in the meeting, rather than saying, oh, can we have a chat about our relationship? Because that might be quite a lot for some people. So I thought I'd get your thoughts on that. You're hired. Okay, and uh, there's a, a person... But I'll come back, I'll elaborate. Top, and then yeah. we'll, t we'll get some okay. more questions in, but that, yes, please. I, I'm really interested in, as a leader, how you get the balance right between admitting culpability, mistakes, and having a learning organisation with building trust from staff in your competence. Mm. Okay, yeah. very good. So, uh, so I could summarise those questions for you. You can just go for it. Yeah, no, no, tell me. I okay, like so, we, so we've got... Uh, do, do, uh, does storytelling help us... Um, learn and embrace yeah, errors. Yeah. Uh, so, how, how should you be um, forewarning people of okay. the conversations you're going to have with them? And to what extent should leaders uh, accept responsibility for failure? So, I, I was thinking you were going to sort of put them all as one beautiful, one single question, right? <laughs> oh, so, come on, tell yeah, me I know, favor. but I thought, I'm only wow, human. <laughs> you know, I thought that could be very interesting. I mean, in a way, they are all like there's some polyhedron here, and we're looking through different sides at kind of the same phenomenon. You have really raised the stakes for the next Yeah, I know, I know, sorry okay, about great. that. But so, okay, I'll just take them one at a time. First of all, yes, I think stories, which is why, why Tim and I write books with stories in them. You know, stories play a critical role in our learning. We have evolved to be um, more able to take in narrative or more, more, um, more, more um, attentive to narrative and narrative structure, right? That stories have beginnings and middles and ends and sort of messages and people, the people in the stories are memorable. So then ah, I'll remember, you know, I'll remember Heemstra and her students. I'll remember Edison and his lab assistant um, empathizing with him. And then the concept will be clearer. If I, I could just give you the definition, it's a pretty clear definition, but I think it wouldn't be as, as memorable. I am 100%, and I think this isn't utterly unrelated in that it's all about language. Um, the whole idea of psychological safety, and it is an aspiration, not a reality in most cases, is that we, 
respect each other and trust each other enough to be direct. If I have a problem with your phone, I'm going to talk about your phone, not our relationship. I mean, that just seems almost frightening to me, right? Like, uh-oh, let's talk about our relationship. I mean, no, 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 right? I might want to talk about, I mean, the, 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 you're having your phone in the meeting makes me worry about the contributions you're able to make to our team. I'm happy. Like, let's have a conversation about that. And I want to make sure to hear what you were thinking. I don't know. Maybe you had a daycare emergency, and I should know that right before I make any judgments. Um, and and then this is actually leads us so nicely into your question because I honestly think, and again, this may be it's far more aspirational than achievable, but transparency is the aspiration, right? So you shouldn't be, as a leader, making up failures to admit to so that people, you know, you're vulnerable, right? No, it should be honest. It should be an honest admission. If there is a role you played or a contribution you had to something that went wrong and you own that directly, not only do I trust you more, so that's not a trade-off, that's a strengthening, um, I certainly respect you, and I think, God, you must be fairly self-confident to be willing to admit that rather than all the bravado and the bluster about being you know, perfect and error-free. So I actually think, now, there could come a point where we realize you're doing nothing but screwing up, and you're, you know, that that's a, may lead to a difficult decision. Yeah, this, um, this has escalated quickly, hasn't it? Yeah, sure. But, but you know, it's like, I think people are, are um, there's a funny thing. We think people will like kind of we intuitively think people will like us more if we're perfect, but we always like people more who are human, right? Who are, uh, you know, when you make a new friend, it becomes a friendship as soon as you start acknowledging some, you know, weaknesses or worries or anxieties. And then you too, ah, you know, then we have, now we have a genuine bond. Now that's different in a, in a vertical, but it's still more of a, wow, I'm, I'm impressed by your strength and I'm going to try to do the same and with, with my team and my colleagues. Any more questions? Hand, hands up. I can see it. Ooh, yeah, lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah. Uh, so uh, could we take... So I see, I see uh, the, the person in the green, the person in the suit jacket. Green is the, right in the, front the, here. The, yeah. the, uh, the lady behind them. Yeah. Hello, my name's Jeremy Kaplan. Um, there's a massive experiment going on right now, and it's going on for more than 200 years, which is the American democracy. <laughs> and if, yeah. you, if you look at your... Could be lovely, the wrong kind of wrong, huh? Yeah, well, if you yeah. look at your lovely spectrum that you shared before, there seems to be a hell of a lot going yes. on in the blameworthy world right now. Yes. How do you, in any way, shape, or form, intervene, advise, help, coax, or whatever you need to do? Great. Right. I don't know. They don't have a magic wand. Yes, let's get the other yeah. two. Yeah. Concise question. I'm sure yep. it'll also be a very simple answer. Okay. Yep. 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 Yeah. My name's Ian Wigston. Tim, I enjoyed your piece on golf the other week. Um, Professor Edmondson, um, we're working with a school where there's been a history of post-school suicide, oh. and I'm wondering what and how you might think about introducing your thinking into an educational environment. And just sorry. For a slightly grim clarification, do you mean that people are uh, killing themselves in the evenings after school or having left the school? Okay, thank you. I'm very sorry to hear it. And there's a lady in the white top. Uh, I'm interested in the contradiction between taking risk and saying that, that that can't be safe and the term psychological safety 
where I think there's sort of an expectation of it being of a, oh, creating a culture yeah. where we feel safe and comfortable all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is that phrase maybe helping or not helping anymore? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. So, there, so there is is there a is there yeah. a contradiction that between psychological safety and the risk taking yeah. involved in experimentation, or um, and two uh, two situations where the the stakes uh, are very high indeed. Um, uh, suicide of uh, young people mm. and uh, fate of American democracy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Gosh, how much time do we have? We've uh, got, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. honest answer, we've got about 10 minutes before yeah. I need to get you out signing books. Uh -huh. So, um, but feel free to be well, quicker than that because we, we take more questions. Sure, no, no, I will, I will. I, 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 so I'll start with the last one, which is, it's my fault. Um, the term, and the term, the term was already in the literature. Um, a reviewer on an article suggested that that's what I, when I was talking about interpersonal climate and, and interpersonal risk climate, like, hello, bad term. They said, no, what you're talking about is psychological safety. I said, okay, because when a reviewer says that's what you're talking about, that's what you're talking about. Um, academics know what I'm talking about. So, but the, so I agree, the term erroneously implies that I'm going to be wrapped in cotton wool and all will be well when ironically it means exactly the opposite. It means we can take interpersonal risks. Right? We can take interpersonal and scientific risks. I, if I am in a psychologically unsafe laboratory, I'm gonna do safe experiments, and they're gonna get into B minus journals. If I'm in a more psychologically safe lab like Heemstra's, I'm gonna try to do A plus experiments and 90% of them are gonna fail. So it's, it's literally the opposite of what the term seems to imply, or at least it's been taken to mean. Um, now, I, I, I do think that, I mean, the, the, going backwards here, the um, suicide is, you know, it's the, it's the ultimate failure, um, and it's um, essentially always, I think, not the right kind of wrong, so the wrong kind of wrong. And it happens because of bad thinking. Right? It, it happens because a person believes that the only option forward for them is to end their life. And, and, and in, in, so, you know, in so many different varied ways. I do think when we talk about the schools, we had a sort of rash of them in, in Palo Alto, very wealthy, very privileged group of young people, a similar challenge. Um, it's, I'm gonna cite Thomas Curran's book, um, which is called the perfection trap, as you know, it's, it's adjacent and highly overlapping with the things I talk about, but it's, it's really an error, right? It's an error to think I'm supposed to be perfect, things aren't supposed to go wrong, um, and, and it's, a, it's an error that has infected many young people. There's countless written about it and studied about the effects of social media, the effects of you know, social groups, et cetera, et cetera, way more than we can do justice to, but I think what is necessary is to open the conversation, to be having conversations about the challenges that people may be experiencing, the places that they can go to talk, to get help, you know, to just to make it all way out in the open. As my advisor, Chris Ardress, used to say, make it discussable. So many of these things are undiscussable and they're far more pernicious when they're undiscussable when they're, when they're discussable. As for Washington, sigh. I think you made a very insightful point in that, um, I, and I think it's relatively new in history, in our 300 or 270 year history, um, that there's so much on the blameworthy end of the spectrum. 
And it's a little hard to know, you know, generally when something's blameworthy, your recourse is the law um, or the standards of the institution that hold people to behavior within the boundaries of the standards of the institution or the standards of the law. Somehow we have lost that. And it is a, it, I'm a little bit mystified as to how you get it back. So you, you challenged me to try to integrate the questions. <laughs> it's very hard when they're coming from the room, but I, we've also had questions coming oh. via, via our hashtag. And, and so I, having asked people to hashtag away, I need to take a couple of them. Mm. And here I think I can make some connections. So, um, so what, one, of our, uh, one of our questioners says, uh, on page 18 of your book, I learned we need to accept ourselves as fallible human beings. What do we need to add or remove in primary education Ooh. to do that? Feel free to duck that one if you like, but it is connected. So on the subject of being human and failing, another questioner says, do you have any advice on imposter syndrome? Yeah. And the questioner adds uh, that in their opinion, women are more likely to suffer from it and it makes it harder to lean into failure. And a third question, uh, much on the same theme, does your theory apply to the sense of failure people can feel in their personal lives? Mm. If so, how? <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So, yeah, so yes. fa um, failure and, yeah. and growing and being so, human, imposter you know, syndrome, primary education. I think some primary school teachers and some primary education sort of, um, sort of methodologies, if you will, are better at this than others. Right? I, I certainly um, uh, had my share of primary school experiences where I was, you know, sent to the principal for reading under my desk because I wasn't supposed to be able to read yet. Um, you know, I had all of the things that sort of reined me in and made me feel bad and whatever, not good. My, my older son went to a Montessori school. It was a magnificent experience, right? They get to experiment like crazy. You know, most of their experiments don't, you know, fail. They, they, they get, they get, praised for process, for, for they, get, they get, you know, questioned on, oh, how are you thinking about that? Like almost, you know, almost a perfect um, opposite and a, and a wonderful experience. So, I mean, I do think, I liked, I, I learned, I first heard the phrase fallible human being from Maxie Maltzby, an African-American psychiatrist. And I just, and he had, he had such a, he had a matter of fact, like, well, that's, that's what we are, right? Like, oh yeah. And I decided to have, to try to have a cheerful, view of that, right? I'm a fallow, I'm an FHB, great, like, that's okay. And by the way, now that I know I'm an FHB and you're an FHB, we can be friends, right? So, you know, I think it's a, um, and, and I think this does take us right to the imposter syndrome because, and that, you know, real relationships are, um, you know, you can share that you feel like an imposter. I feel like I'm the only person admitted to this class of, you know, high achieving young people who probably was an admissions error. That's the imposter syndrome. And it can be crippling, but as soon as it's shared, it's no, because you're not an imposter anymore. You've just said it aloud. So make it discussable once again. Um, and then um, I think, I mean, I tried in the book uh, to include not as many personal stories, not personal to me, but some are me, some are other people, but life stories as business stories. There's still, it's still errors on the organizational side. Um, but I really went out of my way to say, yes, mm -hmm. this thinking absolutely applies in our, in our personal life. Yeah. So many of the questions that have come in 
are really about the emotional side of this. That yeah. How, what it feels like. Yeah. To to you know to realize that you have screwed up or to or to it think feels or so to believe bad. or believe you've screwed up or that somebody else on your team or in your right. in your family has messed up and and you're angry with them or you're or di there's a lot yeah. of emotion here how do we, yeah. how do we process all of that so i mean the first the first thing i have to admit is it's really hard and i don't do it well myself right i will very quickly you know climb up the ladder of inference to sort of feel this is awful right and 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 i'm the worst and i feel bad right so then I've learned, because that's such an outsized and unhelpful reaction, I've had to learn how to walk back down. Like, no, this isn't awful, this is inconvenient, right? Or, 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 or something like that. The essence of many therapeutic traditions, but for instance, cognitive behavior therapy, is about trying to line up more rational thinking, you know, rational thinking that is really a better fit for the actual situation, rather than the emotional, um, and often exaggerated thinking that we spontaneously jump to, especially around this fraught topic of, of failure or, or, or not measuring up. And so I, I like to say just let's be a little more, maybe this is unhelpful, but more scientific about it. Yeah. We've got two more minutes. Would you mind sharing some recommendations for books that people might read, articles, podcasts people might listen to, after, yeah. after they have finished uh, reading, <laughs> yeah, reading which right must read first. Wrong. Well, I do. I did already recommend the Perfection Trap. I thought it was a beautiful book and deeply researched and helpful. Um, um, I um, oh, there's so there there's so many. I I read a a, a book recently. It just uh, came out on emotional inclusion, I, by Molly. Um, DeDrew, who is a general manager of, of um, Longchamp in, in, in Pacific, uh, in Asia and, and the whole Pacific um, region. And it's just a beautiful book by a general manager yeah. of, of learning to do this well, not my, my stuff, but just learning to be a really good leader and a good, yeah. good manager. Um, and um, I also read a book recently uh, called uh, Leadership Superpowers, that was sort of surprisingly practical and useful. Yeah. And then, of course, anything by Tim Harford. <laughs> Thank you very much. I wasn't going to let you out until yeah. you had said yeah. that. <laughs> um, I, I have been, I've been asked by the RSA to please make sure we finish uh, uh, by 2 o'clock at the very latest and in order to ensure that we don't, do not commit a basic failure. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stop 90 seconds early. <gasps> Um, so, because uh, it's not time to do justice to one more question. Thank you for everybody, to everyone who came uh, to the event. Thank you for everyone who asked a question, whether you got a chance to have it answered or whether you just asked it in your head. Thank you for everyone who hashtagged us or who sent questions in um, in, in advance. Um, thank you very much to Foyle's uh, bookshop, bookshop, who are here with copies, probably a few copies of some of my books, but more importantly with copies <laughs> of uh, Professor Edmondson's book, Right Kind of uh, Wrong. I'm going to look because there's a whole, uh, there's a, they've got a checklist for me. Um, and, oh, there's a special offer, if you're watching online, there is a special offer code from Foyle's in the chat, lest you be tempted to buy from 
somewhere else online. You shouldn't <laughs> uh, there is also a uh, RSA fellows are um, are online on uh, on Circle. Um, I'm 50, I don't know what that means, but you probably do. Uh, there's also a new initiative from the RSA, the Regenerative Capabilities Coalition, uh, all about building healthy organisational cultures. You can find out more about that on the RSA's website, thersa.org. Uh, thank you to the RSA, thank you to all of you. Most importantly, please join me in thanking Professor Amy Edmonton. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.